0: All right, we're back here on the AUA Inside Track podcast. I'm sitting next to Dr. Eugene Rhee, and I'm going to let him introduce himself, first of all.
1: Thanks, Casey, for having me, first off. And thank you for the American Urologic Association for allowing the opportunity for this podcast. I'm the National Chair of Urology at Kaiser Permanente. I'm also the Assistant Medical Director for Kaiser Permanente in San Diego for the Business Line and Finance. And I'm also the now the Chair Elect for the AUA Public Policy Council. It's a pleasure being here.
0: Yeah, so today we're going to do an in depth exploration of your popular talk that you've been giving around the urology speaking circuit, and that is sketching life after training. So we want to go into kind of some of the salient points of that talk in this podcast. But first of all, take us back to when you were a resident. And what type of practice you might think you were were going to be entering?
1: Yeah, so when I became a resident, I wanted to go west. I actually finished up at Emory University, and uh, I thought, you know, being in the South for a long time, meaning eight years, I was ready to. Head out west, as they say, go west, young man, and see see what's uh, what it's like. So it's a really exciting time for you all. Uh, having this kind of conversation with Casey kind of takes me back to the day, without the gray hairs. Uh, but <laughs> I just, I tell you, you know, I think people ask me that the one of the most common things were, did you predict your practice that you'd be in? Let's let's be frank about it and tell you that no. I, that wasn't, there isn't a playbook. I went by and figured out this is what I wanted to do. So 60% of my practice is administrative, 40% is clinical. When i f- finished up residency, I thought I'd be a solid clinician and surgeon 100% of the time and kind of move on with my life and take my vacations, and that would be it. And I guess the lessons here, and again, this is my own personal lesson, but it's a story that I'd love to share with those listening, is that uh, life sometimes um, isn't about what you think is going to happen. It's more about recognizing who you are today and making sure that along the way that you're curious. And as well, intentional with the things that you do. We'll get more into it later, but I I do remember um, hearing a talk from a big business guy named Jack Mao, who was the head of Alibaba, who had said that... um, In your 20s, you're allowed to fail and fail early and and people cut you a break just like a resident. In your 30s, um, here's where you got to make rubber meets the road. You got to kind of make decisions based on your experience and people start to say, hey, you know, this kid's got something. Uh, In your 40s, you need to be ready to go, uh, getting ready for the peak of your career. In your 50s, uh, meaning that you are in the peak of your career and people Um, you know, looking at you both as a physician leader or personally as a leader uh, in regards to making sound decisions. And then at your 60s is when. Uh, it turns the corner and you start to enjoy life in a different sort of way where you, you, you learn to take it easy and help teach folks and help people learn your mistakes along the way. Um, and I think in your seventies is, of course, the time to really enjoy the fruits of all that labor. So, um, that being said, uh, yeah, I'm not, I uh, had no idea the practice I'm in would be where um, where I would be running large groups and small groups and trying to help people, um, inspire them, give them vision, and help them execute. Uh, but that's what I seem to be doing a lot more now than ever before.
0: Certainly. So do you want to talk about some of the advantages and things you do enjoy about the setting you find yourself in?
1: Yeah. So the things I enjoy most is first and foremost, and this is really, if there's anything out of this podcast that uh, listeners should get is this. I get this a lot from uh, young folks to ask me, what, what should we or should I do in regards to being successful in a practice? And that's number one is be a good clinician. Excellent clinician. Excellent surgeons strive to be the very best. Uh, trust is the most fundamental core value for folks to feel like they can, uh, lead with you or follow you. Um, trust is not, uh, given. It's earned. And the only way that can happen is if they, in, in our world of being a physician is, 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 it's very, very clear in a lot of literature that those who are perceived or proven to be good clinicians and excellent surgeons are actually the ones who are actually the most powerful physician leaders and, and ones who, who are very powerful and uh, successful in their careers. So that being said, my advice is uh, be, it's real simple. Next five years, when you get out of residency, do the best you possibly can for your patients. Number one, And for you, too, is for your uh, colleagues and um, staff as well as for yourself. So that's the the biggest advice I have for the people.
0: So let's dive into your talk that you've been given, uh, sketching life after training. I know it starts out with some changes, role changes and lifestyle changes that a um, urologist leaving training will find themselves in. Do you wanna just start there and kinda get into what you talk about?
1: Oh, sure, be happy to. So let's let's first talk about job security, number one. Uh, Number one is this, you're in a really enviable position. Uh, All you all are, as you finish up your residencies and training, fellowships, and maybe early in your careers in urology, is that job security is really, really obvious. So what I mean by that is healthcare in general in the U.S. economy is so robust that it has maintained itself and grown through the recession cycles of the past 40 years. Be that as it may, if you even look at urology in particular, I'll throw some numbers at you. This is pretty, this may be actually shocking to a lot of uh, listeners who are urologists. 60%, and this comes from the AUA census that you all fill out, uh, and gratefully so, um, because these are numbers that we can hang our hats on. 62.2% of the urologists, of the counties in the United States, have zero urologists. Let me say that again, 62.2% of urolog- of counties in the United States have zero urologists. And so what that means is that there is a supply issue already at hand today, and there's a supply hand uh, that's going to happen in the future that's it's, it's even more so from a workforce standpoint. And what I mean by that is that there are about 12,500 practicing urologists based on the census in the United States, and out of that, those who log in 25 clinical hours or more number to about 10,000 urologists. So... 10,000 urologists already in a country that's over 320 million plus United States citizens is 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 really a supply issue. And then when you look at the um, the representation on an age group, more than half of the urologists who are practicing are over the age of 55, okay? And what th- those numbers mean going into the future are this. You are at the finishing line, number one, and you should be congratulated. And as well, uh, you will always have a great job and choice and flexibility to do that. But that doesn't guarantee that you'll be in the right job right out of the starting gates. And so I guess what we're talking about here is you need to identify who you are. And I guess when I told you about Who I am and where I ended up my practice. It was more to understand my careful decisions were based on the fact that I knew two things, and here are the two things. Number one was my role was going to change after being a after finishing training, and number two is my lifestyle was going to change. And that was going to change after training. So role and lifestyle are really the two major things that you need to recognize um, that is it's, it's extremely important. Uh, because most of you, you know, um, just philosophically, most of you come from a generation of folks that um, are substantially in debt, I might add um it, it's about 25% of folks coming out of residency owe about $300,000 now. And so that's an important aspect, too, to understand. The other part of it, too, is that most clearly the majority of you uh, seek uh, something very obvious, and that's purposeful work. Uh, not so much as uh, widgets and factory work kind of thing. This is being a doctor is very powerful and purposeful work, but there are different ways that you can be purposeful in, in this kind of work. So I said that you in training now changes roles to you in practice. So these role changes are really dramatic. Some, at some point in what, I wanted to explain is that you have moved from a student to a clinician, a bread eater to a breadwinner, where your life on hold is now life on the goal go. And there is this internal focus now that of of things that you have to do now it goes externally to some external foci. So internally you had like things like lectures you had to go to in rounds, doing research, preparing for the boards and taking them, study. Call all those things. The external focus is, you know, having an employer, for example, uh, instead of a residency director or a fellowship director. Um, patient care, malpractice. Um, let's not forget about the kids and the family, uh, the spouse, the finances course, a house or in a car. So so these are things that change dramatically in a role. And also, I think the biggest thing is also the role of an obligation from yourself, and now there's an obligation to others, others being your family, your patients, your employers, those kinds of things um, as a possibility. And then I told you that I went through the understanding of some lifestyle changes. And the lifestyle changes are... Things like following an academic curriculum to creating your own life and a practice curriculum. Having an academic community of advisors assigned to you to having to assemble your own team. Or having an academic system that determines whether you pass or fail as a physician. To having a life that's filled with unknowns. And... Having others approve of you and your work to determine your own happiness, worth, and legacy. And, and that's really the big thing is determining your own happiness, worth, and legacy is, I think, for me, uh, a lot about physician resiliency and how you build that.
0: So I know in your talk you mentioned this life training alliance phenomenon, I guess, that it's been helpful for you in your own life. And it kind of dovetails with resiliency. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Casey,
1: what I'm getting at is how to prepare for these role and lifestyle changes. Um, I think what I tell folks is recreate uh, a sense of structure, safety and certainty in your life to prepare for these changes of roles and your lifestyles. So creating this quote unquote life after training alliance helps assure physician resiliency. And what I mean by that is, is it's your own team and your own team comes from within first and that's really about your family as well, the mentors in your life. And these mentors may not just be professional folks. These can be a lot of different folks in your life. Uh, colleagues, uh, make sure that the finances are in order, that you maintain realistic expo- expectations there. And, and also as well, understand the role of professional organizations and in being involved. Things like the AUA, uh, extremely important um, in regards to uh, uh, feeling like you have an alliance to assure physician resiliency.
0: So let's talk about the different type of practices that are out there. What goes into determining what practice setting might be the best fit for you coming out of your uh, training?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Casey. And I always go back to uh it, the answer which I get asked a lot about is is about which practice do do I do I go to? And I say there's really two things. Is this a good fit in regards to your professional goals? And is this a good fit in regards to your personality traits? The professional goals are really important uh in the sense that uh it, w- whether it's because you're in $300,000 in debt or because whether uh, research is an immense satisfaction for you and already you have publications under your belt, um, you know this is what makes you happy, this is part of your resiliency, your alliance that you've formed is really strength, strong in the academic sector. Or are you the type that's very entrepreneurial and very independent, type A personality, it's my way or the highway, and you know you don't work well in groups. And uh, those are uh, things that are personality traits, as an example, that may not help you with the professional goals if you're on the wrong, in the wrong practice. So my experience personally is in sort of the employment sector. And just to give you some, I I let the reader, uh, listeners know that there were more than half of the urologists are employed. And I think they're doing this because really um, the decision to become a salary physician um, can be seen as one way to escape the increasing administrative burdens um, achieving a more satisfactory lifestyle, if you will, and uh, especially in a really ever-changing healthcare environment that's it, that's in, in a state of flux right now. So uh, it's not so much as panic mode, but I think that uh, physicians are looking to give me take the much of the burden of uncertainty away from me so that I can practice medicine the way I know how to. And being a urologic surgeon, uh, it's important that I can continue to do the things I invested all this time, energy, and effort in. And I think that's what is the appeal in regards to the employed sector. In addition, there's some financial... Uh, incentives, which is, for example, I mean, you can get a signing bonus if I told you there's a supply issue. So signing bonuses are pretty robust as well. A built-in retirement plan, lack of uh, administrative issues, um, you know, who's hiring and firing. I mean, human resources is a tough gig if you're a business owner. Um, in addition, billing and collecting, rent and overhead, daily operations. This is; These are the things that I think doctors are ill-prepared for uh, after training then there are some disadvantages, right? And some disadvantages are, um, you know, uh, again, it goes back to personality traits. If um, you have to be understood that, you know, this is, corporate culture so do you are you good with understanding there's a hierarchy and not being in charge uh being told who you'll see how many you'll see when you'll see them the possibility that uh even that your income can be changed compensation structures can change compensation models can be introduced without you ownership yep you mentioned ownership can change um as as far as that's concerned uh being judged by metrics i mean i think that uh i think all physicians were, were What's happening in healthcare today is where metrics are a big deal now. It's being, it's no matter where you go, you're going to be measured, um, both on the quality and the patient satisfaction measures. And this is all part, uh, and parcel for how you are compensated, pure and simple. So, um, the incentives have changed from yesterday's doctor to today's doctor. And, uh, as a urologist, um, climbing the corporate ladder and career ladder, Um, is going to be, I think, uh, challenging if you, if you're in the wrong sort of environment based on your professional goals and personality traits.
0: Medscape came out with a recent survey that you discuss as part of this sketching life after training talk, and it pointed to the fact that employed urologists uh, I was looking at the compensation for your average employed urologist versus a self-employed urologist. And self-employed urologists, this survey indicated, uh, we're making $50,000 more a year on average than employed urologists. Can you talk about that at all?
1: Sure. Uh, There's no denying, uh, at least I've seen on multiple compensation data from people like MGMA, Sullivan & Cotter. These are uh, physician compensation firms that specialize in in this kind of detail. Um, It it does appear that uh, self-employed independent practices do make more um, as individual urologists. Um, That being said, though... um, the other statistics I also give is that in the employed model, um, the 72% of urologists are under the age of 45 in the employed model, which, mind you, is more than half of all urologists in the country. Yeah. So it's a younger population that is definitely moving toward an employment model of care. And why is that?
0: Even that's though though the they're making, question. On average, 50,
1: even so. the average is less, right? So, because I think money is not important as, as important as it is to, I mean, it just depends on your, again, what I told you, professional goals and your, and, and how they meet with your lifestyle and your personality. But it, it's pretty evident to me that, um, there are generational attitudes that are different amongst urologists towards employment. Um, and that's certainly, this data speaks for itself. Um, uh, and a lot of it's because of the economic uncertainty with physician reimbursements going on in the world today, um, decline in professional fees, the ancillary income challenges, the investments aren't as robust as they once were, um, hospital bundle payments that are now part of federal law now in terms of reimbursement. These are all things that are really challenging um, how I think it's going to even the scales. But more importantly is, is the administrative burden and the regulatory burden and the management of urology really to me, I think is unappealing for a lot of these young urologists. And so they want to, to me, what you're taking is that cost. I mean, that differential is really replaced by the freedom to explore what these urologists really find meaningful in their lives. Um, that may be professional or personal. But what I do see is a generational difference with um, our folks in my younger look I didn't practice a 19 urologist, and and the younger folks clearly have uh, one one urologist goes to Guatemala another yeah. one you know goes to Africa um, you know, another one, you know, does uh, uh, low uh, low socioeconomic um, housing and helps out with uh, medical care there. I mean, these are all things that really um, are extremely important to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, in an uh, employment model, they get the time off. They don't have to to worry about the regulatory burdens, the profit loss statement, the income statement, the, you know, that kind of thing. So um, that that's what's really drawing uh, the attention and I think what draws these folks to join a practice in an, as an employee, period. So um, the other part of it is malpractice costs. Uh, we haven't even talked about that. Malpractices practices, usually as an employee, you're covered uh, from that uh, standpoint as well. There's no reason to worry about um, that issue as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about technology and how it's changed so drastically in the last... Really, you know, thirteen years yeah. since even the iPhone came out, and you were telling me earlier before we turned the microphones on here that you didn't even have a cell phone when you were a resident. So, you know, oh, wh-
1: so you want to tell that story? Right? <laughs> I had to throw that in
0: there. <laughs> yeah, <just> so- <laughs> to, to take some shots at you, but um no. But the 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 speed of which technology is evolving, you know, how does that impact healthcare, or, or
1: what do we know? Oh, for sure, right? So, I mean, unless you lived in a hole uh things look we we call it the we're we're in the midst and we're all very grateful for it i'm going to tell you to be in midst of the what i call the fourth industrial revolution uh you know the steam engine electricity you know whatnot manufacturing these are all like life-changing events over generations ours is in the digital technology and so don't think for a second healthcare is not front and center with it i think that we're clearly uh at a uh, front row seat, and to be honest with you, we are actually the players on the field. Um, what I mean by that is, healthcare right now is exciting. It's innovative. Um, a lot of different players who are coming into uh, who are coming in saying, "Look, um, you know, we'd like to be the ones who deliver care in a different sort of way." And what I just said in the beginning of this podcast is that one thing's for sure. There's not enough of us around. But if the one thing I want to urge our listeners is to say is this. Uh, don't pigeonhole yourself in some ways to employment models or independent practices or academic you know, research, that sort of thing. Um, there are other opportunities, uh, for sure. In the industry, uh, many people are looking at ways of uh, in, in engaging urologists to deliver the care in ways that um, are really offering access, convenience. It's more consumer metric, consumer centric than patient like view the patient as a consumer right so um urologists are prime for that because frankly urologists um in my mind um just uh, just as a personality we always think out of the box and we're very dynamic folks and i think that um uh, i'd love to see urology leaders be involved in telemedicine be involved in ways to deliver care that's alternative to answer the call to the fact that we just don't have enough urologists out there, period. And so I encourage the listeners uh, coming out of this, it's a very exciting time. You, you all are, I'm envious, really am, because I, to Casey's point, I didn't have a cell phone <laughs> when when we were residents and when we had to go to a restaurant and when you're on call, you had to like let the front, you had to let the front, desk uh, uh the hostess know that um you know I, you know where I was sitting if I was called and uh, I needed to know where a phone was so um life has changed dramatically over not less than 15 years ago so yeah. it's great
0: so I want to thank our guest today on the AUA Inside Track podcast it's been Dr. Eugene Re, and I'm going to give him the final word if he wants to have any final thoughts to share with us thank you Casey
1: and um I, I really want uh, the listeners to understand that uh, I uh, am very proud of our specialty. Our brothers and sisters are a wonderful group of folks who, I think um, we have a bright and promising future. Um, many of you, I talked we talked about resiliency in your life. Uh, talking about understanding uh, the role changes and the lifestyle changes that occur and be prepared. And that's really my sort of take home message for you. And finally is, you know, don't worry. Um, be the best physician you can be, the best surgeon you can be. Uh, concentrate on that for five years. Get involved, um, if you choose to do so with things that you feel are relevant and important, uh, for you. Um, and that doesn't have to be in medicine, but it certainly can be in urology. I'd love to see you all in our future, uh, in Baltimore at the AUA, for example, uh, in leadership positions and working committees and being, uh, you know, being involved in, um, the committee work that we all do together. Because at the end of the day, we're all volunteers. And uh, it is, uh, they're a very happy bunch who, who come here on a yearly basis to Baltimore. And I, I really appreciate the AUA for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to the AUA Inside Tract podcast, an official podcast of the American Urological Association. For more information, please visit auanet.org.